Dare to Believe. Beginning today and for the next four Sundays, we're going to be daring ourselves to perform five critical, important actions as Christians. We're going to be daring ourselves to believe. We're going to be daring ourselves to hope. Next week, we're going to look at Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the walls and talk about hope. We're going to dare ourselves to commit our lives completely to Christ, to be generous with all people, and to love others. Now, I think we're all familiar with the word dare. The word can be used both as a verb and as a noun. We're going to focus today just on the verb. It, came, it can mean to have the courage to do something difficult or something that would make a person afraid or uncertain. As an example, the actress dared a new interpretation of the classic role. It takes courage to dare to do something new sometimes. Or to dare can mean to challenge someone to do something or perform some action that is possibly difficult or dangerous. I might dare you to go skydiving. I'm not going to do it myself, uh, but I might dare you to do that. As children, we often dared one another to do something silly or maybe rude or possibly improper, but that's what children do, not adults. This is very common on, on the playground where most of us grew up. The movie The Christmas Story reminds us of how a dare works. In the movie, a boy named Schwartz dares a boy named Flick to stick his tongue on a frozen flagpole. And as any Canadian will tell you, this does not turn out well. Watch the little clip. And this ritual is very important. <laughs> Are you kidding? Stick my tongue to that stupid pole? That's dumb. That's because you know it'll stick. You're full of it. Oh, yeah? Yeah! Like double dog dare you! Now it was serious. A double dog dare. What else was left but a triple dare you? And finally, the coup de grace of all dares, the sinister triple really dog dare. I triple dog dare you! Hmm. Schwartz created a slight breach of etiquette by skipping the triple dare and going right for the throat. All right, all right. Come on, yeah, his, his tongue froze to the pole. Uh, he was abandoned by the other children as they went back inside after recess. A teacher finally spotted him out the window. They called the fire department and they set him free. The movie reminds us of the power of a dare. We can dare someone to do something silly, or we can dare someone to do something immensely worthy and good. And this latter is the way we're going to use this in these five weeks, challenging each other to act in ways that are enormously good and positive. However, at the same time, we remember that we will be daring ourselves to act in ways that may require a certain amount of courage. First, we're daring ourselves to believe. What do we mean when we say believe? You're familiar with Acts 16, where the Philippian jailer is, is uh, converted to Christ after a, an earthquake opens up his jail. Paul tells the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The word means persuaded, be persuaded. Now, the events of that night... And the behavior of Paul and Silas as Christ's representatives persuaded this jailer 
to believe in Jesus, to wholly trust Jesus, to be wholly true. We sang those words in one of our songs this morning, to, to wholly trust Jesus. Now the jailer looked at the evidence and he was persuaded that Jesus was the one he wanted to follow. He had the courage to believe, and by believing he changed the course of his life. C.S. Lewis has packed a lot of theology into his fiction, especially in the Chronicles of Narnia. In The Horse and His Boy, there are four main characters, two young humans and two talking horses, because in Narnia there are animals that are able to talk. These two horses have been stolen from Narnia and have been held captive in another country for their entire lives. Bree is a war horse, the male, and Bree constantly makes references to Aslan, the son of the great emperor, the one who created Narnia. But he doesn't really seem to believe in Aslan. He just sees him as representing something good, kind of a a figure of speech that everybody uses. In a short scene from the book, Aslan finally appears to the two horses. Gwyn, the mare, responds immediately to Aslan, but Bree holds back. He's spoken of Aslan for years, but doesn't believe in him. You're going to hear a dramatization of the book by focus on the family. Just a short clip. You'll hear Gwyn and Bree and Aslan. I must be rather a fool. Happy the horse who knows that while he is still young. Or the human either. Dare not. To not dare. Those are the words of Aslan to Bree, who finally recognizes, yes, I've been a a fool. I, I didn't believe in you. And he says, happy the horse or the human who learns that at a young age. Don't be afraid to dare to believe. Find the courage to believe, the courage to be persuaded that Jesus is wholly true. Because the consequences of not believing are enormous. Not believing blocks us from any kind of a relationship with God, a true relationship, with a God who loves us so much that he died for us. And there can be no greater loss in our lives than that to lose the relationship with God. Now, believing in Jesus is not the same thing as knowing something about Jesus. Many people know much about Jesus, but choose not to dare to believe in him. We want to dare to believe in Jesus. This morning, I want to explore two questions. First, why is it hard to believe? What are some of the obstacles that we must overcome if we're going to believe? 
the primary obstacles to believing are fear and doubt. We're going to look at those. The second question we're going to consider is where can we find the courage to dare to believe in Christ? We will approach these questions by immersing ourselves in a well-known gospel story that we've heard earlier in the service of Peter walking on the water. In this story, we're going to clearly see the source of fear, and we're going to see the source of courage. Now let's again, as Ashley reminded us, put this story in its proper setting. Take your Bible or the one in the pew in front of you and turn to the 14th chapter of Matthew. Uh, It's page number 745 in your pew Bible if you're using that one. In the beginning of Matthew 14, we hear the story of the death of John the Baptist, brought about by Herod's wickedness, Herod the king, and the scheming of his wife, Herodias, and the seductive dancing of their daughter, Salome. Well, actually her daughter, not his daughter. What a sad ending to the life of one of the great men of the Bible. He was beheaded because he dared speak the truth to the king and his wife. His wife actually was the wife of his brother. And that's what John the Baptist was challenging. And he was beheaded. Hearing the news, Jesus and his disciples withdrew to a place of solitude. We can imagine that Jesus went there to grieve, to mourn, to rest. In verse 13 we read, As soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. But the crowds heard where he was headed and followed on foot from many towns. Any plans for rest or comfort? were thwarted by the crowds. And as Ashley pointed out, it's not a small crowd. There's 5,000 men in this crowd, plus women and children. Instead of becoming frustrated and angry, as I might, Jesus was compassionate, and he turned his attention to their needs, and so we see Jesus getting back to work. He's teaching. He's healing. He's caring for people. Toward the end of the day, the disciples came to Jesus who I think were less sympathetic with the crowd than he was, and suggested to him that he should send them away so they could get something to eat, of course. Look at verse 15. That evening the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, That isn't necessary. You feed them. But we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Jesus took those loaves of bread, those two fish, the lunch of a young boy who just happened to be there, and he fed the entire crowd, a crowd well in excess of 5,000 people. At the end of the day, Jesus dismissed the crowd finally and told his disciples to get into a boat and go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee while he stayed behind to pray. I believe Jesus must have had a lot to pray about. He had his own grief over the death of John. He had his own concerns over the crowd that desperately wanted to make him the king of Israel. Not the kind of king that he was going to be, but the kind of king who would throw out the Romans. Now fast forward through the night and toward the dawn of the next day. Somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., the disciples are still in their boat and they're caught in a storm. And they're fighting for their lives. Jesus is not there to rescue them. They're lost and afraid. Matthew says they were being battered by the waves, but the word that Matthew used 
could also suggest that they were being tortured by the waves. Suddenly they see someone or something coming toward them on the water. It's still dark and and visibility isn't very good, much less so with the wind and the waves and the spray. They don't know what they see. So they call it a phantasma or a ghost. They think they've seen a ghost and they're scared to death. Who wouldn't be? They're already afraid they're going to die. Now they see a ghost. Is that not confirmation that they're going to die? But Jesus calls out to them over the sound of the storm, and he says, Don't be afraid. Take courage. I am here. Now, there's a footnote in, in the Pew Bible. It doesn't, it doesn't matter to me what translation you're reading. If you see a footnote, pay attention to it, because it's often there for a reason. And this footnote suggests that the actual Greek is Jesus says, I am. And that reminds us of the story in Exodus. So it could be the I am is here. Jesus may be saying, don't be afraid. The I am is here. Now, every Jew would recognize the reference, Exodus 3.14. God encounters Moses in a burning bush. And he commissions Moses to go back to Egypt and demand that his people be released from their captivity. And he's uncertain about that. He's scared, actually, because there's an arrest warrant for him back in Egypt. So he says, well, if I go and demand that these people be set free, who should I say sent me? And God says, Yahweh, I am who I am. Yahweh is God's name. You you see the four consonants here. The the Jews at this time didn't write with vowels, only consonants. You had to make up the vowels on your own or fill them in from your your knowledge. Uh, So we're not exactly sure how they said Yahweh. That's why when we first found it in time King James was written, we called it Jehovah. Same four consonants would just mean I am. God's name, according to himself, means I am. So Jesus doesn't just say, I'm here. He says, I am is here. He announces to them that God has arrived. Were they persuaded? Did they believe? Well, Peter seems to have believed. He seems to rise to the occasion. He dares to believe. He he puts his belief in the form of a proposition. He says, if you are the Lord, bid me come to you on the water. Or if we read between the lines, he's saying, if you are Jesus and you are God who you say you are, then bid me come to you on the water. And Jesus accepts this and says, come. Now, in our imagination, we see Peter climbing out of the boat. Can we feel what he feels? What was it like to take that first step to get out of the boat and to stand on the water. Every instinct formed in his life over years spent on the water must have been screaming in his head, this isn't very smart. At first it goes well for Peter. He's actually walking on the water. He has dared to believe that Jesus is God and that he can be trusted And as a result, he's doing something that he should not be able to do. He's not supposed to walk on water. 
However, this doesn't last very long, and Peter finds himself beginning to sink. That's not hard for us to reconstruct what must have happened. He took his eyes off Jesus and began to take notice of the storm. And his natural and perfectly normal fears began to overcome him and displaced his belief. He was no longer persuaded that because of Jesus he could do what was impossible. He was afraid he was going to die. But at least he was smart enough to cry out for help, and Jesus rescued him, taking him by the hand and bringing him back into the boat. But as he reached out to Peter, Jesus said, You have so little faith. Why did you doubt me? Do Jesus' words suggest that Peter was a failure? What do you think? Was Peter a failure? We often credit that to him. to say, well, he, he looked at the waves and he got afraid. He failed. Well, I don't know. I, I don't read the story that way. Uh, he was the only one who was willing to get out of the boat. Other 11 weren't ready to do that. The only safety they had was to be in the boat. Can we, in, in other words, Peter dared to believe. And, and at that, he was not a failure. He dared to believe. Should we be surprised that he was shaken by the circumstances? I don't think so. There are many ways that our belief in Jesus can be shaken by our circumstances. And we'll find ourselves sinking into doubt. It happens to most of us with painful regularity. So where does this fear come from? Well, sometimes the fear comes from past circumstances. Maybe as a child, Peter, out fishing with his father, had had his own close call with drowning. And maybe now he's afraid that he's actually going to drown for real. Or maybe as a child, and this is more likely, I think, Maybe as a child, he was a witness to someone drowning because he spent his whole life on that lake. And it traumatized him. And he doesn't want to be the next one to drown. So past experience can make us afraid. I tried that once, and it didn't work out so well. I, I tried to help someone. I tried to tell someone about Jesus, but it, it didn't work. Or fear can come from our imaginations. Our imaginations are fertile ground for doubts and fears. If our imagination is not held in check, we can take nearly any circumstance and turn it into the worst sort of disaster. And some of us are better than that than others. I, I'm pretty good at that. Peter might have imagined that he's about to die. Maybe he's even imagined about imagining what it will feel like to die. He who had spent his whole life on the water was about to drown because he did something that he probably shouldn't have tried to do. Maybe that's what he was imagining. Another thing about fear is that it's contagious. We catch it from our family and our friends. Can't you just imagine some of the other disciples saying to Peter as he's getting out of the boat, Peter, don't do it! You spent your life on this lake. You know what's going to happen if you get into this stormy water. Stay in the boat! And then finally, let us not neglect the fact that we have an adversary who does not want us to believe. He does not want us today to dare to believe. And he knows how to insinuate doubts and fears into our minds. And he does it all the time. We see this 
we see him doing this in the Garden of Eden, where he says to Eve, Did God really say that you must not eat this fruit? Did God really say that? Did he mean it? And then he says, he wasn't really looking out for your interest. He just knows that if you eat the fruit, you're going to be like him. And he doesn't want that. He doesn't want you becoming like him. He's insinuating doubt into her life. And he's insinuating that maybe God is not trustworthy. Our adversary knows very well how to insinuate doubts into our minds. And he has many messengers, and often they don't even realize that they're messengers of the adversary. And we've got to be very careful that we don't let doubt and fear take away our belief because we've listened to the wrong messages. Our culture is full of voices that say, Did God really say? Did God really mean? Does God really matter? And if he's a good God, he couldn't have meant that. You fill in the blank. There's all kinds of things you can fill into the blank. God didn't really mean that, could he? We have an enemy who doesn't want us to dare to believe, and he'll use all means at his disposal to keep us from believing. So that answers our first question. Where do these doubts and fears come from? Now let's move to the second. Where do we find the courage to dare to believe? Again, before we do that, let's remind ourselves of the stakes. To fail to dare to believe is much worse than freezing your tongue to a post. The consequence of not believing is ultimately to cut ourselves off from any kind of relationship with God, the God who created us, the God who loves us, the God who sent his son to die for us. This we don't want to do, so let us dare to believe. Now, we often find ourselves in the same place as Peter. Most of our lives are spent in a similar situation, trying our best to believe in the midst of chaos, caught in a storm that feels like it's threatening our existence. Because the fact is, we're often confronted by storms in our lives. Sometimes it's the storm created by the loss of a job, especially for someone who's older in life and has been at that career for maybe 10, 20 years and now says, I don't think I'll get another job in this career. Now what do I do? That's a storm. Or health problems. You're healthy all your life, and then all of a sudden, the doctor takes a test and says, I've got some news for you that isn't so good. It might not be bad, but it, and you have to, you're in a storm. What am I going to do? What's going to happen to me? Or relationships fall apart. Maybe someone you trusted has betrayed you. That's a storm. Disasters, natural disasters or man-made disasters, create storms for us. And these all and many others generate storms in our lives, making it more difficult for us to believe in Jesus. Our storms carry disappointment, and it's hard to overcome that. Believing when everything is good is fairly easy. Believing when we're in the storm can be hard. But there's no escaping the storm, so what will we do? We need to keep our eyes on Jesus, who identified himself to his followers as God, the I Am. This is how we find the courage to believe, by keeping our eyes continually on Jesus, by continually 
soaking ourselves in the Gospels, reading the Gospels. I, I heard a, a wise man 50 years ago, Methodist preacher, said you should read in the Gospels every day. Immerse yourself in Jesus. I, I try that. I don't keep up, but be with Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. And let's not forget the promise that we heard from Isaiah earlier this morning. When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. When we're in a storm, especially when we're in a storm, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus, believing that He is with us in that storm. He is with us. Jesus' name means Savior. Jesus means Savior. But He has other names as well. He's Emmanuel. He is God with us. Every day, every hour, good times, bad times, stormy times, Jesus is with us. We need to keep our eyes on Him. That's what we sang in another song this morning, that He is our peace in, the, my, in our troubled sea. So let's trust Him. Let's believe in Him. Again, Isaiah says, You are my witnesses, O Israel, says the Lord. You are my servant. You have been chosen to know me and to believe in me and to understand that I am God. That's true for us. We have been chosen by God to believe in in Jesus. So let us dare to believe in him. As individuals, as a congregation, let us choose today and from this day forward to keep our eyes on Jesus and to believe in him. Let us continually shut out the other voices and be persuaded that he is God and that he is with us. Let us pray. Jesus, we want to be like Peter. We, we want to have the courage to believe. We want to dare to believe in you, especially in this storm. We, like Peter, will probably fail. We'll start off believing and then doubts will assail and fears will overcome us. And we'll put our eyes on the storm and not on you. Help us in those moments to have the sanity to say, Jesus, help me to cry out to you that you might lift us back to a safe place. But help us today as individuals and as a congregation to make a new commitment to dare to believe in you no matter what else is going on around us, no matter what other people may say. For you are God.